From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, it is Awareness Week here on Mayo Clinic Radio as we cover three topics that are highlighted in the month of January. First, it's Thyroid Disease Awareness Month. We'll cover common thyroid conditions with a Mayo Clinic expert. Uh, Thyroid disease is one of the most common disorders that people have. In fact, thyroid hormone that's used to treat hypothyroidism is the most commonly prescribed medication that patients take. Also on the program, it's Glaucoma Awareness Month. We'll learn more about this condition that's one of the leading causes of blindness in the U.S. And January is National Birth Defects Prevention Month, too. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The thyroid gland. Everyone has one. I think you know very well about the thyroid gland, don't you? Sure do. (laughs) Some people can actually see theirs in the mirror, and your physician can usually feel it, especially if it's enlarged. So your thyroid gland is a a butterfly-shaped gland in your neck, just above your sternum, your breastbone. And if you feel that little notch above your breastbone, Mm -hmm. your thyroid gland, right above that. Okay. And just below your larynx. Your what do you call that? What do most people call voice that thing? Box? Your voice box. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> now the thyroid is called an endocrine gland because it makes hormones, which in the case of the thyroid gland is a big deal because the thyroid gland produces hormones that affect virtually every organ in your body and and they control your metabolism, how many calories you burn or you don't burn and how fast your heart beats, important stuff like that. Sounds pretty important. It is. Critical. Sometimes something goes wrong. Too much thyroid hormone, not enough, or even cancer can develop in the thyroid gland. And January is Thyroid Disease Awareness Month. Here to discuss thyroid conditions is Mayo Clinic endocrinologist, Dr. John Morris. Welcome to the program, Dr. Morris. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So that's a fancy title, an endocrinologist. So tell us what you really do. Uh, basically, I'm a gland doctor, <laughs> gland and hormone doctor. Uh, we're interested in and care for persons that have diseases or disorders of the endocrine glands, which are small organs scattered around different parts of the body that produce these chemicals called hormones that circulate in the bloodstream and have actions on distant parts of the body, places that are separate from where they're secreted. Uh, in the case of the thyroid, the hormone that the thyroid secretes has actions on, as you said, virtually every cell, every tissue, every organ in the body. But there are many other hormones as well. There, there are um, steroid hormones like cortisone uh, and testosterone and estrogen. There are hormones from the pancreas like insulin. There are hormones from the parathyroid glands called parathyroid hormone that controls the calcium level in the bloodstream. And endocrinologists basically makes diagnoses and cares for patients that have difficulties um, in the function of those organs. So there are a lot of organs in the body producing a lot of different hormones. It's really intriguing and complex, isn't it? It's a very broad specialty, a very broad discipline. Uh, And endocrinologists in some ways sort of hide in the background um, because many patients that have symptoms or problems that are somewhat nonspecific can have endocrine problems at the ba- at the root of those. And so they may show up uh, presenting to a different type of doctor 
uh, and be found secondarily or accidentally almost to have an endocrine disorder. And so endocrinology kind of uh, intersperses itself throughout uh, almost all of medicine. Is that why I'm starting to think of this a different way now? Because you've heard for many years that people just don't even think about the thyroid. Indeed, it's one of the last things that gets checked. And all of a sudden, oh, it's a thyroid that is the problem. Is that I used to think that it's just because nobody gave any thi- the thyroid any credit, but maybe now it's just because uh, endocrinology is one of the last places that's consulted when you're looking for problems. Yes, um, many of the symptoms and problems of endocrine disease, especially thyroid disease, are very nonspecific is right. the word we use. They, those symptoms and problems can be mimicked by many other things. For example, uh, one of the most common symptoms of hypothyroidism, an underactive thyroid, is fatigue. Fatigue can be caused by thousands of different diseases and disorders. Uh, thyroid disease is certainly on that list, but it's not even necessarily at the top of that list. Um, unfortunately, sometimes the thyroid gets blamed for that symptom when it may or may not be the cause. And so it's, it's very important to make the diagnosis correctly. And, of course, we utilize a combination not only of symptoms and physical findings when we feel the thyroid with our fingers or maybe look at it with imaging like ultrasound, but uh, especially importantly in our specialty is uh, blood testing to measure the hormone levels in the bloodstream to confirm or refute a diagnosis of an endocrine or thyroid problem. So it's relatively easy to diagnose most thyroid pl- problems with a blood test, correct? I think that's fair to say. There are certainly circumstances where the test can be confusing or unusual, and there can be rare thyroid problems that are confusing like that. But the great majority of the time, it's pretty easy to make a diagnosis of a thyroid problem. Are we getting to a point then when someone just goes in for regular health care that a blood test of the endocrine system would be done just for part of your regular health care? I would say almost. There, there's there been study about whether it's worthwhile or not screening for thyroid disease. Maybe doing a, a blood test, the, the most common one we do is called TSH, to measure the TSH level in the bloodstream on everyone at some period, you know, once a year, once every five years, whatever. Um, but the general consensus right now is that it's probably not worth just screening an otherwise healthy, well-feeling person for thyroid disease. But, again, the symptoms are very nonspecific. Almost any symptom that someone might have could possibly be attributed to thyroid, uh, like fatigue, for example. So if someone has a symptom, it's prudent to check a thyroid uh, level, at least in my opinion. So we're almost, we're almost at the point of screening, but generally probably not screening for otherwise healthy people. I know there are multiple different tests uh, to, to check on the thyroid, but would you say in general the best screening test for thyroid disease is a TSH? In most situations, a, a single measurement of TSH, which is actually not a thyroid hormone. It's a pituitary hormone. It's the hormone from the pituitary that tells the thyroid what to do. It's the mechanism by which the pituitary controls the function of the thyroid. But interestingly enough, that test is the most sensitive and reproducible of all the tests we have to monitor the thyroid. And in most cases, that single test is enough. It's like checking the wife and not the husband. So you're checking the organ, it tells you what to do. That's a different endocrine problem. No (laughs) comment. Hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism, they sound like they're the same kind of thing, but they're opposite of each other. Exactly right. They're exactly the opposite. Hypo means under or less. So hypothyroidism is an underactive thyroid. It's a situation in which the thyroid, for sometimes a number of different reasons, has uh, 
lost the ability to produce the correct amount of thyroid hormone. So the thyroid hormone levels in the bloodstream start to go down, and the person, if it's severe enough, begins to have those symptoms of hypothyroidism, like fatigue and feeling cold, dry skin, dry hair, maybe some change in the bowel habit, constipation. Also known as January <laughs> in Minnesota. Very nonspecific <laughs> symptoms. You're We're right. got it. Exactly. Uh, so that's hypothyroidism. Hyperthyroidism with an ER instead of an O is an overactive thyroid gland. It's the opposite situation in which the thyroid, again, sometimes for different reasons, uh, produces too much thyroid hormone. And the thyroid hormone levels in the bloodstream start to go up, and those elevated thyroid hormone levels have effects on various organs. In the case of hyperthyroidism, the common symptoms are things like weight loss, uh, palpitations or racing of the heart, tremor of the hands or fingers, feeling very hot, sleeping poorly, uh, in many ways, opposite symptoms from an underactive thyroid. And either one you can treat, correct? They're both very treatable. Uh, thyroid disease is one of the most common disorders that people have. In fact, thyroid hormone that's used to treat hypothyroidism is the most commonly prescribed medication that patients take. Uh, so we treat an underactive thyroid generally by simply replacing the deficiency of thyroid hormone. What do you do with the overactive thyroid? So the overactive... The overactive, we um, we treat the thyroid so that it is unable to produce the excessive amount of thyroid hormone. And there are a number of different ways of doing that. Sometimes it's surgery. Sometimes it's radioactive iodine. We also have medications that we can give that interfere with the chemical machinery that the thyroid uses to produce thyroid hormone and reduce the secretion of the hormone that way. All right, endocrinologist, thyroid expert, Dr. John Morris. Time for a short break. But when we come back, we'll talk about what it means if you have a thyroid gland that's too big that you can actually see in the mirror. And we'll talk about thyroid cancer. Plus, myth or matter of fact, 50% of people with a thyroid condition don't even know it. 50%. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is an endocrinologist. He's a hormone doctor. He said he's a hormone and a gland doctor. And he's <laughs> also an expert on the thyroid gland, Dr. John Morris. So, Dr. Morris, we've... Oh, I forgot. Myth or matter of fact. Yeah. Sorry. Fif- well, and I think... Even I think I might know the answer to this one. <laughs> 50% of people with a thyroid condition don't even know it. Is that a myth or a matter of fact, Dr. Morris? Well, I think that's a matter of fact. Um, thyroid disease, uh, as we've already said, is a very common uh, problem out there. Of course, the degree of thyroid dysfunction varies quite widely, and there are many patients that have mild thyroid dysfunction that have few or mild symptoms that uh, may not even bother to go to the doctor about it because they're busy with other things. So, yes, I think it's likely true that there are many, many persons out there with thyroid dysfunction that don't uh, recognize it. Who's at risk of having a thyroid issue? Is that everybody? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what you just said sort of suggests that maybe you ought to have a TSH when you go have your general exam. Maybe we'd find more of those people. I think if you're not feeling well, then yes, you should have your TSH measured. Yeah, because you start chasing all these other issues. (laughs) Yeah, um, but we also sometimes see mild thyroid dysfunction that does not require treatment. We call that subclinical thyroid disease or subclinical hypothyroidism especially. And it's so mild that it may not, at least at that point in time, be causing any symptoms or problems, and we elect just to follow it along. And if it gets worse, of course, we treat it when that happens. But 
it's not necessarily a great advantage to the individual to find that if it's not really causing them any difficulty. And that's where the question about screening comes in. So is there anyone who's more at risk for thyroid issues? Women, right? Women are definitely more at risk, yes. Uh, The most common cause of thyroid dysfunction or thyroid disease is an autoimmune disorder. We call it autoimmune thyroid disease. And in general, autoimmune diseases, almost all of them, are more common in women than in men. We don't really understand why that is the case. But thyroid dysfunction, hypothyroidism, for example, is about uh, five to eight times more common in women than it is in men. It's still common in men, but women are certainly at higher risk. Persons that have a family history of thyroid disease are at increased risk of having thyroid disease. Uh, much of that's autoimmune, but some nodules and other uh, enlargements of the thyroid that we call gorder are also genetically related and are predisposed uh, within families. So those are th- probably the two big things. Yeah, pl- explain to us what you mean by autoimmune. Autoimmune is a situation in which the immune system, the individual's own immune system, has decided, for reasons that we, again, don't necessarily understand all that well, that it doesn't like the person. Or, in this case, the thyroid is being attacked by that person's own immune system. And we call that autoimmunity, immunity against self. Got it. Perfect explanation. What is Graves' disease, and is that the same as hypo or hyperthyroidism? Graves' disease is the most common cause of an overactive thyroid, hyperthyroidism. It's an autoimmune disorder in which, again, the immune system is attacking the thyroid. And in the case of Graves' disease, there's a very specific antibody that's part of that immune attack that actually stimulates the thyroid to function more than it should. Actually, that antibody mimics the effects of TSH that we were talking about earlier, the hormone from the pituitary that stimulates the thyroid, this antibody interacts with the thyroid in a manner similar to the way TSH does and stimulates the thyroid to function more than it should. But, of course, the source of that antibody, the the lymphocytes and plasma cells that are producing that antibody, don't care what the thyroid hormone levels are, like the pituitary does. So it just drives the thyroid to continue to function more than it should and at times when it should not be, and it it raises the thyroid hormone levels and causes uh, hyperthyroidism. So Graves' disease, the short answer is it's an autoimmune thyroid disease that stimulates the thyroid to function more than it should. All right, let's say you're shaving in the morning. If you're putting on your eye makeup in the morning and you notice... Moisturizing, Tom. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and you see a, a lump in your neck. What should you do? And, and what could it be? Well, a lump in the neck can be many different things, but one of the common things is a thyroid nodule, uh, a lump in the thyroid that we call a thyroid nodule. And the scenario that you just described is a very common one by which thyroid nodules are first discovered. So if someone notices a lump like that, they should show it to their doctor. And generally, the doctor is going to feel the neck with the fingers and determine where it is and what it might be. And if it's a thyroid nodule, nowadays, the next step would be to look at it with an imaging study, especially an ultrasound, which is the best method that we have for carefully examining the thyroid. And that will tell you if it's a cyst or if it's a solid tumor? or It will tell us a lot about what it is, where it is, uh, what it's next to. It will tell us if it's cystic or solid, and it will give us some clues about whether it's benign or not. Most nodules in the thyroid are benign, or we call them benign thyroid nodules. But it is possible to have a tumor or a cancer that arises in the thyroid, and that's always one of the questions when we find a lump there or a lump anywhere else for that matter. And the ultrasound gives us some clues about that. But the best test to know if it's something more worrisome uh, is 
to have a biopsy. Uh, we call it a fine needle aspiration, fine meaning thin. Very thin. <laughs> Very thin. And we slide a little needle using ultrasound to place the tip of the needle right into that nodule to get a few drops of the uh, cells from the uh, nodule uh, for pathologists to look at under microscope. And that gives us a very good answer, at least in most situations, as to whether it's a benign nodule or something more concerning. And you said usually it is benign. The great majority of the time it's benign. About 95% of the time it's benign. So if it's malignant, is the treatment medical or surgical or potentially both? It is potentially both. Actually, most thyroid cancers are a type of thyroid cancer called papillary thyroid cancer. And most of those are very well treated with surgery alone. Most persons that have newly discovered papillary thyroid cancer are cured by the surgery to remove it. In some cases, when the tumor is more uh, aggressive or advanced, we may consider other treatments. Uh, radioactive iodine is one of the more common ones that we prescribe. And, of course, if the person has surgery to remove their thyroid, they don't have a thyroid anymore. So they need to take thyroid hormone to replace the thyroid, uh, and that works quite well. What if you don't have your thyroid condition treated? What ends up happening? Well, of course, it depends on what the thyroid condition is. Um, if it's thyroid dysfunction, either overactive or underactive, it is possible, if it is severe or becomes progressively worse, to have very serious disease related to that, even to, to die from thyroid dysfunction. Severe hypothyroidism can cause someone to pass away, as can severe hyperthyroidism. Uh, but that would not happen to everyone. It's quite variable in its expression and in its course. In some cases of hyperthyroidism over some months or years may actually sort of burn out, so to speak. The thyroid kind of gets injured by the immune attack, and it ends up going the opposite direction so that the person ends up with hypothyroidism. But it is possible to be very sick from severe thyroid disease, and so it's prudent to, to make a proper diagnosis and care for it correctly. All right. When we all wake up tomorrow, look at ourselves in the mirror, we want to do a quick thyroid check. How do we do that? What's the, what's the best way? Other than seeing an obvious mass just above your breastbone, isn't it you swallow? Yeah, or, you tip yeah. your chin up a little bit. Look at mm -hmm. your the base of your neck just above the clavicles. Collarbones. Uh, the collarbones. And then swallow. And if you see an asymmetry there, if you see a lump on one side that's not on the other, or you see a general... Uh, enlargement that looks like a, you know, a fat butterfly at the base of the neck, that could be your thyroid. And, uh, you know, you should show that to your primary care provider, let them check your neck and see if it is or not. You know what else you could do, Dr. Shives? You could book an interview with an endocrinologist. <laughs> exactly. Keep your phone <laughs> on because you'll, we'll be calling. Monday I have morning, my huh? fingers warmed up. Yeah. All right. Perfect. Endocrinologist, thyroid expert, Dr. John Morris, truly appreciate you being here. Great thank, information. Thank you for inviting me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss a common problem with aging eyes, glaucoma. And later on in the program, we'll learn more about preventing birth defects from a Mayo Clinic expert. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer, or maybe a topic you'd like us to cover. You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. In today's society, children are inundated with media. Many kids spend hours in front of devices such as computers, TVs, smartphones, or tablets. But how much screen time is okay for your child? Now, 50% of teens will sometimes say that they often feel addicted to their, to their smartphone devices. 
Mayo Clinic's Dr. Angela Matke says the American Academy of Pediatrics new screen time guidelines help families manage media use because too much can impact mental and physical health. We know that increasing hours of screen time per day is associated with increased BMIs and childhood obesity. The new guidelines break it down by age. For babies under 18 months, no screen time except for video chatting. Ages 18 to 24 months, if you choose to allow any, opt for high-quality programming only with a parent there to help explain things. Children ages 2 to 5, one hour per day, and kids over 5, including teenagers, two hours per day. We're not saying no screen time. Matke says for teens especially, limited media can be a good thing. It helps with social engagement, building a network of friends around them that is often supportive. And in other news, let's talk about secondhand smoke. It causes or contributes to various health problems, including heart disease and lung cancer. Secondhand smoke, also known as environmental tobacco smoke, includes the smoke that a smoker exhales, which is referred to as mainstream smoke, and the smoke that comes directly from the burning tobacco product, which is called sidestream smoke. Secondhand smoke contains lots of toxic chemicals. The dangerous particles can linger in the air for hours or even longer. And it isn't just the smoke that's a concern. The residue that clings to a smoker's hair and clothing, as well as cushions, carpeting, and other goods, sometimes referred to as third-hand smoke, also can pose risks, especially for children. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, glaucoma is the leading cause of preventable blindness in the developed world. There are over 2.5 million people who have glaucoma in the United States. And if you go worldwide, it's about 60 million people. Now, it's a condition of increased pressure in the eyeball that damages the optic nerve, the nerve that goes from the back of your eyeball to your brain so you can actually see of course, it's vital to your vision, and glaucoma happens It's because of too much pressure in the eyeball. But if you know you have it, it can be treated, and hopefully you can preserve your vision. Hopefully, yes. Yeah. January is Glaucoma Awareness Month, and here to discuss the condition is Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist and glaucoma expert, Dr. Arthur Sitt. Welcome to the program, Dr. Sitt. It's nice to see you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here today. So how do you explain glaucoma to your patients? So it's a, it's a really good question, and I think, uh, Tom, you, you had a very good introduction to what glaucoma is. Um, and it, it is a disease that affects the optic nerve, which is the cable that carries signals from the eye to the brain so that your brain can interpret what you're seeing. And, um, and when that nerve is damaged by a number of factors, pressure being the most important factor that we know of, the, the nerves that carry those signals are lost, and uh, and vision is is ultimately impaired. Now, one of the one of the important things to recognize about glaucoma, though, is that the the brain and the eye have remarkable adaptive abilities. So you can actually lose about half of those, these cells in the eye before you actually have loss of vision. Half of the cells in the cable in the exactly, in the nerve. Wow. Exactly, and that's why it's really important uh, for for patients to to get their their eyes checked because you can actually have significant damage before before you would ever notice anything. Yeah, that's that's the key. You can't feel glaucoma is happening. There's no way for you to actually just tell that that's happening. Absolutely. So it's called the silent thief of night because, uh, or a thief in the night because it, it comes and takes your vision 
and and you don't really know that it's happening until until it's very very late. So that's why regular eye checks are important. What causes glaucoma? Is it hereditary? So that's a great question. So there certainly are hereditary factors. Um, if your if your immediate family members have glaucoma, you're at increased risk of, for glaucoma. Certain ethnicities, such as African Americans and and Latinos, tend to have higher rates of glaucoma. Um, so if you have family members that you know of who have glaucoma, certainly you should be even more vigilant about getting your eyes checked. In terms of what actually causes it, that's that's also a very good question. We we don't know all the things that cause it. We know that pressure is is very important, and that's that's really what we treat right now. But even pressure, um, a lot of patients get glaucoma at what what would be uh, considered a normal pressure. So we don't, actually don't like to talk about normal pressure. There's a pressure that uh, most people have, but you can get glaucoma at any pressure. It's whatever your particular eye can tolerate. So at this stage of the game, you can't cure glaucoma. You control it? That's correct. Okay. So we can't cure it, and we do have a lot of treatments to control it. And in, in most patients, we can control it well enough so that you can maintain um, uh useful vision uh, throughout your life. So when someone goes into the eye doctor, how do you check their pressure? It's a relatively simple uh, test, I, I think. And can you also tell if there's been any damage to the nerve by looking inside the eye? Yes, you can. So so checking the pressure is relatively simple. Uh, there's a number of different ways that we can check the pressure. Uh, sometimes there's an, there's an air puff, uh, which doesn't require any anesthetic eye drops, uh, there is something called apnea. Air puff, did you say? That's correct. So People don't like it. <laughs> really? I'll tell you that yeah. much. <laughs> yeah, if, if you've had it, you'd know about it. <laughs> it's, it's, I thought uh, they put that little thing on your eyeball. Yep. And so, so that's, but that requires a little anesthetic. That's right. A, a little anesthetic eye drop that is, is uh, you know, it's, it's an eye drop, so, um, and, um, but it's very quick, and we place a little uh, uh, device called an applination tonometer on the surface of the eye. And that allows us to measure the pressure. And there's a number of different techniques that can be used for, for screening pressures as well. And also, if you look at the nerve through a, a slit lamp, you can tell if it's been damaged by that, the increased pressure? Absolutely. And, th- and that that is really critical because, as I mentioned, you can get glaucoma at any pressure. So even if your pressure is, is similar to someone else's pressure and within uh, what would be considered a normal range, it doesn't mean that you're not at risk for glaucoma. So you have to... When you go and see your eye doctor, it's critical that they dilate your eyes and look at the nerve to see whether there's already damage there. If there has been damage, can it be reversed? Can it be healed, or is it done? It, it's done, mm. uh, unfortunately. Uh, the, the eye is its really part of the brain, and, and the brain doesn't regenerate uh, once we get into adulthood, and the eye doesn't regenerate once we get into adulthood. So, so the key is to catch the disease early so that we can treat it and prevent as much as possible further damage. Um, do you ever see glaucoma in children? Glaucoma does occur in children. Fortunately, it's, it's not, uh, not common, but it definitely can occur in children, and it tends to be a, a very severe disease when it occurs in children. Uh, children, obviously, uh, uh, infants anyway, can't tell us if they're having vision problems, so uh, it's important for um, 
for pediatricians and family doctors and parents to to be on the lookout for symptoms of of children and, and, and infants. It is, and that's why uh, Glaucoma Awareness Month is wonderful because it highlights the fact that you really do need to get an eye exam, even if you think your eyes are just fine. It's really important. Absolutely, and and uh, and and um, getting those regular eye checks really are the are the key, and particularly if you're in an at risk group such as you know family members with the disease, or if you're in a a uh, high risk um, ethnicity, or if you're uh, or if you're if you're older. So glaucoma definitely is more common as as we age. All right. So we've made the diagnosis. It's glaucoma. How do we get the pressure down? So the most common thing is to, to give eye drops, and eye drops uh, tend to be very well tolerated for most patients. We give it once or twice a day usually, and and for the for the large majority of patients, that's all all that's required. That's eye it. drops. Hmm. Now there are some patients where that's not enough, and another option would be to do laser. Um, the laser is done in the office, and it's it's uh, very. Uh, quick and uh, and simple to do. It takes probably about uh, 10 minutes. And what does that do? So what that does is we apply the laser to the drainage areas of the eye called the trabecular meshwork. That's where the fluid drains out of the eye. Hmm. And the laser helps the eye to uh, to clean up some of the, the the blockage that's there to lower the pressure down. Improve the drainage. Exactly. All right. And, uh, and because it is so uh, easy and quick, um, some, some op- ophthalmologists will will uh, advocate using the, the laser earlier, sometimes even before eye drops, depending on patient preferences. Wow. Explain what sort of research is being done on glaucoma at Mayo Clinic. So there's a lot of research. So our, our, uh, our research here at Mayo Clinic spans from trying to discover new medications to treat glaucoma, trying to understand better the underlying causes of glaucoma. As I mentioned, we, we know some of the things that contribute to risk for glaucoma, we don't actually don't know what causes it. Why does mm-hmm. some one person with a normal pressure have normal eyes and another person with normal pressures have glaucoma? So we're trying to understand these factors both from a mechanical standpoint as well as a genetic standpoint and understand better the, the uh, outflow of fluid from the eye. Glaucoma, we've learned that it's the leading cause of preventable blindness in the developed world. You've told us that it's important to make the diagnosis early before there's damage to the optic nerve. And you've also told us that the eyeball is really a part of the brain. So we could call you a brain surgeon in addition to being an ophthalmologist. (laughs) Absolutely. We actually like to think of the brain as part of the eye. Oh, nice. Very good. Arthur Sitt, eye specialist, Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss prevention of birth defects with a Mayo Clinic expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Birth defects. Unfortunately, they affect one in every 33 babies born in the United States every year. And that that ends up to be about 120,000 birth defects in the United States each year. Birth defects range from mild to severe and can affect almost any part of the body. Aside from the one birth defect that is 100% avoidable, fetal alcohol syndrome, not all birth defects can be prevented, but there are things that a woman can do before and during pregnancy to increase the chances of having a healthy baby. January is Birth Defects Prevention Month, and here to discuss with us is OBGYN nurse practitioner Deb Miller. Welcome to the program, Deb. It's nice to meet you. Thank you very much. I was surprised when Dr. Shive said one in every 33 babies has a birth defect. 
That surprises me. I think it doesn't, it didn't seem like it's that high. Sure. And, and the, a lot of that can be very mild. Sure. Uh, you can have a, a very mild deformity that will not affect any function in the, of the individual. And that is still considered a, um, a, a defect. So when you talk about the major deformities, um, you know, those are. And we think fewer. of the tragic kinds. Correct. And Correct. some of those, what are the most common birth defects? Well, I think the most common birth defects right now, well, certainly there's Down syndrome, there's neural tube defects, which affect the spine and the brain, and there's heart defects, um, there's visual and hearing defects as well, and, and all of those are real common, or I shouldn't say common, but uh, prevalent. Those are the most common ones. And uh, 120,000 babies uh, a year, do we have uh, any idea what causes the majority of birth defects? The majority of birth defects is an unknown uh, uh, etiology, uh, unfortunately. Um, but certainly some can be genetic, some can be chromosomal, such as Down syndrome, and then environmental influences, you know, chemicals that we have ingested, medications we've ingested, things we've been exposed to, such as lead or mercury in various fish. Um, so there are some um, causes that we know of that can be modified or, or avoided so that we can try to avoid some of the defects. And that's in- what we want to know how to do, huh? Great. When my friends and I were having babies, we were taking folic acid. Right. You my would. mom and her friends did not. What's the diff- What does folic acid do for babies? Folic acid, it's a metabolism pathway, and we know that it is so important to make sure that that pathway is developing normally so that the neural system of the baby, the, that spine and brain are developing normally. So it does prevent neural tube defects. Okay, that's the spina bifida is an example of that. And so we know that if you're supplementing with a multivitamin as a woman, that they all have at least 400 micrograms of folic acid in it. If you're taking that multivitamin at least a month before conceiving or considering pregnancy, that that really reduces that risk considerably. So that's probably the best recommendation at this point is to make sure you're supplementing well. Aside from staying as healthy as possible, you know, having a good healthy diet, being aware of your risk factors, being aware of any medical conditions you have that may increase your risk of birth defects, such as diabetes, hypertension, obesity. And those are some things that can be modified prior to becoming pregnant if you meet with your health care provider as a preconceptual visit to modify some of those risk factors that may help you avoid birth defects. So that's before you ever even get pregnant. Yes. So tell us those things again. Right. So it would be nice to meet with your health care provider when you're considering a pregnancy so that some risks might be modified, Uh, making sure that your weight is healthy. And if not, let's get on a good diet and exercise program because we know that obesity increases birth defects as well for neural tube defects. Is that right? There's Obesity. heart defects, yes, and um, smaller, too larger babies. So there are birth defects associated with obesity. So that could be addressed. Your diabetes could be under its best control. We know that diabetes increases risk of birth defects. Um, and high blood pressure issues that are common in the population now, addressing that, making sure that maybe we adjust the proper medications so that there are safer medications that you're using when you become pregnant, adjusting that. Um, as well as maybe seeking some screening tests to determine whether you have additional risk factors and referring for genetic counseling or genetic testing if there seems to be either a family history or personal history of potential other birth defects. You mentioned folic acid, important uh, for formation of the brain and spinal cord. And then you said one of the the uh, congenital defects, uh, you mentioned the word spina bifida. Tell us, Correct. tell our listeners what that well, means. Well, that's when the uh, the spine does not form properly. It's a malformation. And so, um, you know, 
if we could prevent that, that would be excellent. They and often that's low have down in the in the back. The lower part of the back, it often leads to paralysis of the lower extremities and bladder and bowel issues. So the fetal surgery program that we now have added to our maternal fetal medicine department with Dr. Rodrigo Ruano just started in October. So he is doing some surgeries um, and just did a surgery correcting the spina bifida. No, no, now, wait a minute. So this is on the fetus? This is on the fetus. And, and so how did you how do you figure out that they have spina bifida that you right. can see so that on the ultrasound? De- right. Those are determined by ultrasound, most of the abnormalities. And there are four different surgeries that Dr. Ruano can perform here at Mayo now. Um, has done one with the spina bifida, removing the fetus, correcting the deformity, putting the baby back into the mom to continue incubating close high-risk maternity care and fetal care, and uh, improving the outcomes. With correcting spina bifida with fetal surgery, it reduces the risk of the cognitive disability that may occur, as well as the functioning of the baby. Why do you have to have that surgery before the baby is born? Why don't you just wait until after they're born? Right, because as the spine develops, there are more and more losses. So if it continues to develop in a malformed way, that causes cognitive impairment to increase as well as the deformity. So correct it early, and some of those deformities and malfunctions don't occur or lessen. Oh, no, wait a minute now. <laughs> Let me just tell you, we're trying to book him for this program. Yeah. So um, you write down these questions okay. as we go through. So you said you remove the fetus from the uterus. Well, I assume that the umbilical cord is still attached. Yes, yes. And it's not really removing. You're going to take, you're going to open up the uterus a little bit to where that, the oh, area that's okay. exposed that needs to be uh, surgically re- repaired and is you, corrected. So it's not an, ex, you know, an extraction of the oh, fetus. To, okay, all right. uh, yeah, no. But, and you do that through an abdominal incision, right? You go uh, through the abdomen, then yes, through the uterus? Some, and then... some of the surgeries are fetoscopic, so it's just a small uh, you know, opening into the uterus and to the baby. You bet. Wow. I'm not the expert on that. I'm just <laughs> adding that as a way if there was not a birth defect that right. was prevented. There are new, some new uh, Four surgeries techniques. he does. What are they? Yes. So he can um, help with um, a twin-twin transfusion. When you got identical twins, you got one placenta. Sometimes it's imbalanced and one, one twin gets all the, all the nutrients all the and the goods, other doesn't. Huh? So they can go in and do a laser surgery correcting that. They can do the spina bifida as well. There is um, a bladder repair that can happen, and then, of course, that helps the kidneys and the lungs form well. And then the final surgery that is occurring, oh, for a diaphragmatic hernia, which is when the diaphragm doesn't form correctly, and so that makes your lungs not develop well. They're under-inflated. They put balloons in, inflate the lungs during (laughs) during the pregnancy, and then that can help with Hey, make so, sure you tell right. him how much fun you had here, okay? I am, I am. I, I, I met with him beforehand to make sure it was okay. I can Good. speak about the program. So It is Birth Defects Prevention Month. What is the last thing that you want people to know about preventing birth defects? Yes, well, I would say that the most important thing is to be as healthy as possible before you consider conception. And that is with a, a visit with your provider, if that's possible. Get on multivitamin with folic acid. Make sure your diet and exercise plan is as good as and healthy as possible. Keep a good weight and just be as healthy as possible. That's right. And all of that will increase your chances of having a healthy, healthy baby. baby. That's right. We'll be talking about Birth Defects Prevention Month with OB high-risk nurse practitioner, Deb Miller. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. 
Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.